Seventy sevens, as the Hebrew reads, are decreed for your people and your holy city for putting an end to transgression, for placing the seal on sin, for expiating crime, for introducing everlasting uprightness, for setting the seal on vision and on prophecy, for anointing the Holy of Holies. Know this, then, and understand. From the time there went out this message, Return and rebuild Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed prince, seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, with squares and ramparts restored and rebuilt, but in a time of trouble. And after the sixty-two sevens, an anointed one put to death and will have nothing. The city and sanctuary will be ruined by a prince who is to come. The end of that prince will be catastrophe, and until the end there will be war and all the devastation decreed. He will strike a firm alliance with many people for the space of a seven. And for the space of one half seven, he will put a stop to sacrifice and oblation, and on the wing of the temple will be the appalling abomination until the end, until the doom assigned to the devastator. That's from Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, the New Jerusalem Bible, modified. The introduction of the Messianic Kingdom immediately in connection with or following events of the author's own time is fully in accordance with other Old Testament representations. Isaiah places the advent of the Messianic King in immediate connection with a deliverance from Assyrian oppression. We find that in Isaiah chapter 8 verses 16 to 9, verse 7, and also Isaiah 10, verse 33, to chapter 11, verse 1, and likewise Micah 5, verses 4 to 6. The Deutero-Isaiah blends in one picture the release and restoration from Babylonian captivity and the final consummation of the divine purposes for Israel. The same principle is illustrated in Christ's eschatological discourse in Matthew 24. That's a quotation from the article on Daniel in the Hastings Dictionary of the Bible, 1911, Volume 1, page 556. This is a discussion of the famous 77s. Note that the NIV 7s is correct rather than the weeks of the King James Version. And the NLT is right when it has here 70 sets of 7. This prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 presents a unique mathematical prediction which alerted the people of God to the time of the birth of the Messiah after 69 sevens 
and foretells a happy outcome for Jerusalem after a yet future time of trouble and punishment. That brilliant future for Israel and the world, however, cannot occur before, quote, this gospel of the kingdom is announced to all the nations. Matthew 24, verse 14. Only then can, quote, the end come. No flood came until Noah had finished the work on the boat. This may be a lesson for us. I begin by setting the historical scene. I quote now, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before the prophet Jeremiah, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. All the leading priests and the people also were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nation, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord against his people became so great that there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their youth with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young men or young women, the aged or the feeble. He gave them all into his hand. All the vessels of the house of God, large and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officials, all these he brought to Babylon. They burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had made up for its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. That's a reading from Second Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 11 to 21. Another quotation, And this whole land shall be a desolate and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, 
I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. That's from Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 to 12. Thus says the Lord, only after 70 years have elapsed for Babylon will I visit you and fulfill for you my promise to bring you back to this place. And finally, this good news, when the 70 years expires. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom, and also declared in a written edict, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. That's from Second Chronicles chapter 36, verses 22 to 23. This brings us to Daniel's important visitation from Gabriel in the first year of Darius, 538 B.C. The expiry of the 70 years was very close, and this prompts Daniel's prayer. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the prophet, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem namely 70 years that's from daniel chapter 9 verse 2. daniel began to pray for the restoration of israel based on jeremiah's prediction the same plea for restoration and peace in israel is found in zechariah chapter 1 verse 12. then the angel of the lord answering said O Lord of armies, how long will it be before you have mercy on Jerusalem and on the towns of Judah against which your wrath has been burning for 70 years? And then Zechariah chapter 7 verse 5, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? So the issue facing interpreters of the famous 77s prophecy of Daniel 9, 24-27 is this. Is this period of time, 490 years, one that ends somewhere in the early chapters of Acts, perhaps at the death of Stephen? around 33 AD, although the chronology of Acts is not specific, and then continues beyond the expiry of the 490 years for another 40 years, 
thus extending to AD 70, or B is the right interpretation, the one which makes terminus of the prophecy, as in every other of Daniel's prophecies, the grand restoration and ultimate peace in the kingdom for which we all yearn and pray, thy kingdom come. The two choices are diagrammed in the chart at the end. I've noted that in all the biblical investigations which have led us to the Abrahamic faith, the simple solution seems to be the best. God is one is an easy concept. Jesus is the Messiah, son of David, is not complex. The presence of supernatural evil as an external power of evil in the universe is an easily documented biblical fact. Is it unreasonable then to look for the climax to the 77th prophecy as the second coming of Jesus and the restoration of Israel, at least a remnant of Israel, that's to say a collective national conversion of what we call Jews, which has been such an important element of the gospel as Abrahamics have understood it. This eventually bright future for Israel is supported, I think, with complete clarity by Paul in Romans chapters 9 to 11 and backed by the best commentary. For example, the International Critical Commentary on Romans and C.K. Barrett's famous commentary on Romans. There's an important logical coherence in the whole of Daniel 9. Daniel has read in Jeremiah that 70 years of punishment had been allotted to Israel for her persistent failure to listen to the prophets. The key to Daniel's impassioned prayer, he was probably in his 80s at that time, is his desire for an end to trouble. Trouble, that is, in Jerusalem and the re-establishment of national sovereignty for his people. It is exactly the same passion for the future of Jerusalem and Israel which drove the famous last request of Jesus' apostles when they asked, after a six-week seminar on the kingdom, in Acts 1 verse 3, Is this now the time for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1 verse 6. At the simplest level, Daniel obviously wants to know when things are going to be okay again. When will the promised restoration, as seen by all the prophets, be a reality? When will the expiry of the 70 years bring the promised relief and release? When will the world be at peace under the Messiah? That is really the key biblical issue for us now as much as for the people of God in all ages. Daniel is looking for restoration and peace. 
I find it quite bizarre to imagine that Gabriel brings him an answer involving a closing date of AD 70, when in fact, far from a restoration of the city, Jerusalem took its hardest hit and was burned to the ground. Is that really the terminus point for this grand prophecy? Remember how the prophecy ends. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. On the wing of abominable things, he will come desolating even until, and here comes the good news, a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That's a quotation from Daniel 9, verses 26 to 27. Does not this language strongly suggest that at the end of the famous period of 70 times 7 years, that's to say 490 years, the enemy of Israel will be eliminated and thereupon peace and all the good things yearned for and prayed for by Daniel for the city and the people will finally become a reality. Would it not be the height of cynicism for Daniel to have been given a calculation ending in AD 70 when the city suffered its worst and ongoing destruction? remedied in a very unsatisfactory and obviously non-final way by 1948 and the re-establishment of Israel amidst terrible problems ever since. And is not a terminus for this prophecy around 33 AD, perhaps the stoning of Stephen, equally baffling? And how does one justify a period of 490 years with a fulfillment that would be, if ending in AD 70, as historicists say, a prophecy of 530 years. That's to say, AD 30 plus another 40 years to AD 70. My first point is that there's a logical parallel between the promised restoration after 70 years under Nebuchadnezzar and the ultimate restoration following the 70 times 7 years of Gabriel's prophecy. We are taught then to expect restoration at the end of the 70 times 7 years. Not two millennia of further trouble initiated by a massive destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. If sound Bible study comes from joining the dots, connecting obviously related topics, then it is clear that Daniel's final heptad, or period of seven years, singled out for special attention, does not stand alone. Is it not reasonable to find the explanation of that three-and-a-half-year period in the book of Revelation, which five times refers to just such a period of time, times, and half a time, 42 months or 1260 days? 
We find that expression in Revelation 11, verse 2 and 3, Revelation 12, verse 6 and 14, and Revelation 13, verse 5. This would be a period then of trouble in the Middle East. It would seem to be a major hermeneutical mistake to divorce Daniel 9:27 from its companion texts in Revelation. And since Revelation does not deal with A.D. 70, then the presumption is that Daniel 9:27, with its period of three and a half years, also does not have anything to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. It terminates rather in the real and ultimate restoration of Jerusalem still lying in the future. But other considerations lead me to think that classical futurism is the right reading of the prophecies in general, and in particular Daniel 9. Part of my conviction is based on the wide range of disagreement among historicists as to the proper way to assign periods of supposedly 1260 years. It was some thousand years after New Testament times that the idea was first proposed that days in prophecy really ought to mean years. And search was then made for ways of fitting these prophecies into already fulfilled history. It was that day-year theory which gave William Miller a basis for his failed prophecy of 1844, and after him the Seventh-day Adventists, their now discredited theories of a heavenly cleansing of the sanctuary in 1844, and the Jehovah's Witnesses, their equally failed prophecies for the Second Coming. The Watchtower, controlling the theology of millions of keen Bible students, tried to excuse its errors by pretending that they were right in at least one of many failed prophetic forecasts by saying that the parousia, second coming, did happen in 1914, only invisibly. Later, Edgar Wisenant, former NASA rocket engineer, sold two million copies in his book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. He too was using a day-year theory, and when 1988 failed, he tried 1989, and that failed too. Happily, the Church of God, Abrahamic faith, has been wise enough to stay out of the date-setting business. Herbert Armstrong, of course, confidently knew that 1975 was definitely to be the onset of the Great Tribulation, and later followers of his thought that Herbert would be raised from the dead on a certain date. Their hopeful surrounding of his tomb at the appointed time 
did not bring him to life. He is still dead with the remainder of the dead. The 77's prophecy of Daniel provides no reasonable basis for a day equals a year theory because Gabriel spoke not of 70 weeks of years but of 70 heptads or units of seven undefined. Context shows that in this case the heptads have to be heptads or sevens of years. The heptads could be sevens of minutes or hours or days or years or millennia. In fact, on the basis of the part of the prophecy already fulfilled at the first coming and death of Jesus, we know that the sevens are sevens of years. This is suggested too by Daniel 9 verse 2 where Daniel is contemplating a period of 70 years. Gabriel then answers Daniel's prayer with an extended prophecy of 70 times 7 years, which equals 490 years, which is also 10 jubilee periods of 49 years, with the obvious implication that at the end, the real and final jubilee of the kingdom will come. Jesus referred to his own announcement of the kingdom as the proclamation of the favorable, so to speak, jubilee year of the Lord, according to Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. Pulling all the evidence together, it is a curious fact that the crucial last part of the 77th prophecy has not been connected to other passages of Scripture which show in what chronological setting it should be read. There's a direct link from Gabriel's precious message to the words of Isaiah and also Paul. Much prophecy study has suffered from a lack of attention to the Assyrian Antichrist material, to which Paul pointed clearly when he cited Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, speaking of the final enemy, the man of sin. In Isaiah chapter 10, in an intensely messianic context, see for that chapters 11 and 12, we have warnings to Israel about the instrument of punishment God intends to use against Israel by means of, and I quote the Assyrian, the rod of my anger. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 5. The story goes like this. So it will be that when the Lord has completed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. Compare with that the good fruit of the humble hearts produced by the seed message of the kingdom in the parable of the sower. And also I will punish the pomp of his haughtiness. 
The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour Assyria's thorns and briars in a single day. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 10 verses 12 and 17. And then this, now in that day the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who smote them, that was Assyria, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. A complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, O my people who live in Zion, do not fear the Assyrian who strikes you with the rod and lifts up his staff against you the way Egypt did. For in a very little while my indignation against you, Israel, will be spent and my anger will be directed to their, that's to say, Assyria's destruction. He, the Assyrian, shakes his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. Those who are tall in stature will be cut down, and those who are lofty will be abased. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. That's the Messiah prophesied. He will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked one, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb. They will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. End of quotation from Isaiah, chapter 10, verse 20, to chapter 11, verse 9. Here we are clearly into the millennium. Now what about that interesting information about the destruction of the future wicked person in the very context in which a remnant of national Israel returns to the land? It is said, a destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. A destruction, one that is decreed in the Hebrew kala v'nechetza, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. Do not be afraid of the Assyrian, as we read in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 to 24. 
But this is not all Isaiah has to say. Quote, I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of a destruction, one that is decreed, kala v'nechetza, on the whole earth. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 22 and 23. Now note the immediate context of these words. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, perhaps a false peace and security, and your, that's to say, Israel's covenant with death will be cancelled, and your pact with Sheol will not stand. That's from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 17 to 18. This end-time intervention of God to punish is described as God's, quote, unusual task, his extraordinary work. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 21. It will result in the millennial justice after Israel has learned her lesson and been punished by God's Assyrian rod. It involves, too, the abolition of a false covenant made by Israel. Another witness to the proper reading of these prophecies is Paul. In his very important discussion of the future of the now-blinded Israel, his colleagues who have not accepted the Messiah, Paul says, I quote, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth or land thoroughly and quickly. Romans 9, verses 27 and 28. This is, in fact, in the Greek, a word of completion and cutting short. Here, amazingly, Paul cites the very verses in Isaiah we have been examining for a complete destruction, one that is decreed the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 10, verse 23. But where is this Isianic and Pauline end-time information coming from, straight out of the 77's prophecy of Daniel. Rather, we should say that Gabriel got the gist of his message from Isaiah, and Paul got it from both Isaiah and Daniel. Listen now to Gabriel. One will come desolating, on the wing of abominations, compare the famous abomination of desolation, until a destruction, one that is decreed, that's the kalava nechetza, until this is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Daniel 9, verse 27. The marginal references to this verse 
rightly connect us to Isaiah chapter 10 verse 23 and Isaiah chapter 28 verse 22 and we should also add Paul's quotation in Romans 9 verses 27 and 28. Note the obvious factors in common in our passages from Isaiah, Daniel, and Paul. A complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord will execute in the midst of the land. So says Gabriel to Daniel and God to Isaiah. And Paul references these passages when talking not about A.D. 33, much less A.D. 70, which is Israel's low point, but the glorious future work of God and the Messiah in restoring Israel for the very last time by destroying the vicious enemy, the Assyrian, which God will have used providentially to punish his wayward people, Israel. I think that these passages successfully show that the expiry of the 70th seven of Daniel, in common with all of Daniel's prophecies, brings the great kingdom of God for which we pray and which the world so urgently and desperately needs. Paul, Isaiah, and Daniel all speak of a false peace, a covenant with death, an evil Assyrian, king of the north. We did not mention the further reference to a failed covenant for Israel with glimpses of the millennial peace in view. I quote, God has filled Zion with justice and righteousness and he will be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 33, verses 5 to 6. But before that good time coming, we have this warning. Behold, their brave men cry in the streets, and the ambassadors of peace weep bitterly. The highways are desolate, the traveller has ceased. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He has no regard for man. The land mourns and pines away. Now I will arise, says the Lord. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 33, verses 7 to 10. The scene is consistently clear. First trouble at the hand of an Assyrian who promises a false peace with Israel, then a decisive decreed destruction of the evil one by God, and thus the completion of the 70th seven, resulting in and followed by blessed restoration. To make A.D. 33 or A.D. 70 the climax of this prophecy, I think fails to grasp its immensity and significance for us today as we await the kingdom of God. 
we could add that the whole final vision of Daniel 11 and 12 only confirms this picture of end-time trouble from a final king of the north, readily equated with the king of Babylon, who features as the great enemy of Israel at the day of the Lord, according to Isaiah chapter 13. The whole of Isaiah chapter 13 and 14 should be read here, showing the great day of the Lord and the presence of the king of Babylon, the shining star of the dawn, presumably a false messiah. All this is related to the apocalyptic falling of the stars, God's punishment of the world, the final overthrow of Babylon, and the subsequent restoration of Israel. In that poignant passage, what a moving passage this is. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord as male servants and female servants. And they will take their captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. That's Isaiah chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. What a world that will be. Jeremiah pictures a tragic yet hopeful struggling remnant making their final return to the land so that the cry Bashanahaba next year in Jerusalem will be realized. Another quotation from Jeremiah. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country, and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and she who is in labor with child together. A great company will return here. With weeping they will come, and by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of waters, for I am a father to Israel. That's a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 8 to 9. This great event will mark the beginning 
of the Kingdom Jubilee year and the end of 10 times 49 preceding periods of time. The 70th week future in the earliest pre-millenarian church fathers. Confirmation of the futurist reading of Daniel 9 and the parallels in Revelation is provided by the earliest fathers. I quote, He whom Daniel foretells would have dominion for a time and times and half a time is even already at the door, about to speak blasphemous and daring things against the Most High. At a quotation from Justin Martyr in his Dialogue with Trypho, chapter 32. He shall purpose to change times and laws, and everything shall be given into his hand until a time of times and a half time. That is, for three years and six months, during which time, when he comes, he shall reign over the earth. That's a quotation from Irenaeus in his Against Heresies, chapter 5, 25 and 3. Another quotation from the Fathers, And when this Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months, and sit in the temple at Jerusalem. And then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds, in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, but bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom, that is, the rest the hallowed seventh day, and restoring to Abraham the promised inheritance, in which kingdom the Lord declared that many coming from the east and from the west should sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That again is from Irenaeus in his Against Heresies 5, section 25 and 3. Further note on early church fathers and futurism. The earliest post-New Testament writers on prophecy were premillennial, post-tribulational futurists. Until Augustine in the 4th century, the early church generally held to the premillenarian understanding of biblical eschatology. This chiliasm entailed a futuristic interpretation of Daniel's 70th week, the abomination of desolation and the personal Antichrist. And it was post-tribulational, the possibility of a pre-tribulational rapture seems never to have occurred to anyone in the early church. That's a quotation from Robert H. Gundry's book, the Church and the Tribulation, written in 1973. And that quotation is from page 173. It is sometimes said that futurism is a modern phenomenon, unknown before its appearance in 1580. 
It was then that the Jesuit Ribera published a long commentary on Revelation, restricting most of its prophecies to the reign of a single Antichrist, dominating the world for three and a half years, just before the return of Christ. This point of view is demonstrably untrue in the light of the clear evidence of the early church fathers. Some of these had much to say about eschatology. As we have seen, they also looked for a short reign of Antichrist just before the arrival of Christ to establish the millennial kingdom on earth. George Ladd, highly respected writer on eschatology, agreeing with Gundry, cited above, makes the point clearly. The futuristic interpretation was essentially a return to the method of prophetic truth found in the early fathers, essential to which is the teaching that the Antichrist will be a satanically inspired world ruler at the end of the age who would inflict severe persecution upon the church during the Great Tribulation. That's from George Eldon Ladd's book, The Blessed Hope, written in 1980, page 37. W.R. Kimball agrees that the early church was, quote, generally premillennial, post-tribulational, and futuristic in their eschatological belief. That's from his book, The Rapture, A Question of Timing, written in 1986, page 29. It is most important to add that the pre-tribulation rapture theory is entirely missing from any writer before the 1800s. It is true that the Church Fathers did not expect a long period of time to intervene before the appearance of the Antichrist. However, they believed that the prophecies, read in a straightforward manner, described a final, short period of intense tribulation just before the arrival of Jesus. This time of intense suffering in which the church would be involved would last for three and a half years. The early church fathers definitely did not expect the beast of Revelation 13 and Daniel 7 to rule for 1260 years. Such a day-year theory was not known prior to 1000 AD. In 1826, modern futurism, still without the pre-tribulation rapture theory, was given publicity with the appearance of a book by Dr. Maitland, curator to the Archbishop of Canterbury. In his inquiry into the ground on which the prophetic period of Daniel and St. John has been supposed to consist of 1260 years, Maitland refuted the day-year theory 
and contended that the 1260 days be taken literally as a final period of unequaled persecution of the saints just before the second coming. Of these 19th century futurists, George Ladd wrote, they followed a pattern of prophetic events similar to that found in the early fathers. In fact, they appeal to the early fathers against the then popular historical interpretation for support of their basic view. A pre-tribulational rapture is utterly unknown by these men. That's a quotation from George Ladd's Blessed Hope, page 39. It is important that the false idea that futurism was introduced by the Roman Catholics be corrected. The early church fathers' type of futurism should make a special appeal to premillennialists who all agree that it was a later development, particularly under Augustine, which led to the amillennialist view of prophecy. The work of the anti-Nicene fathers, as before the time of Nicaea, some of whom wrote in detail on Daniel, Matthew 24, and Revelation, reveals that they read the prophecies in a straightforward, natural way, using the words of Jesus to interpret Daniel. They linked Jesus' reference to the Great Tribulation to its obvious base in Daniel 12, verse 1, and saw the Great Tribulation as a final period of extreme agony just before the arrival of Jesus in glory. They did not confuse ongoing tribulations and trials, which we all experience, with the final great tribulation of Matthew 24, verse 21, and Daniel 12, verse 1. Today we know that this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world, and then the end will come. Matthew 24, verse 14. Is it possible that Peter's reference to us hastening the coming day in 2 Peter 3.12 could have a direct reference to us? Are we praying for the kingdom to come while not fully doing our part in the gospel of the kingdom's announcement worldwide as a necessary precursor of the kingdom? Could the flood have come if Noah had been slack in his work on the ark? I ask this question for our own meditation.